out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Robin Guthrie, who, one-time member of the Copto Twins, um, has had a prolific solo career since then and has just released several um, albums and EPs, including Mockingbird Love, which is an EP, and also an album Pearl Diving, and that's going to be followed by the Riviera... EP which is coming out as well so um, yes you can find that from all good websites and um, probably streaming places as well so um, yes this is the interview which we did last month December 2021 Um, so yeah after several minutes of casual chat we got down to that very exciting subject that was the 80s I know and um, I'd been talking about how prolific and creative the 80s were and how many bands there had been during that 10-year period. I know, Thatcher's Britain. Anyway, look, after that, Robin then comes back with some interesting chat. And then from then, it's just quality conversation. Well, possibly. Anyway, look, Robin, tell us about the 80s and all about those fabulous bands and sounds. Anyway, you were part of it. We love it. Kind of really interesting, the parallel uh, between yourselves and the music industry. You know, journalists, it's like, I'm trying to explain this to one of my distributors who's like, charging up the ass for, you know, distribution to get your CDs in the shops kind of thing. And these are people that distribute hundreds of bands. So they make their kind of bread and butter from taking basically money from hundreds of different artists. And, you know, journalists interview hundreds of artists, right? Mm -hmm. This artist here, I only do me. I've only got an income from me. I've only got, like, me. I don't get anything from anybody else at all mm. so it's a very different perspective it's like you know the you know distributors saying you know oh why do you need to get so much money for your cd and it's just like well you're going to sell like ten thousand cds this month with with about 400 different bands i'm going to sell my cds this month you know do you know what i mean so it's the, the perspective of being a journalist interviewing loads of people i only ever get to talk about me <laughs> and it's probably a good thing because i don't really know fuck all about anything else so no, uh, no that, can you see the, the perspective difference it's like um don't have a constant uh you know turnover of lots and lots of different things i just do me yes and 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 have to focus on that but is it yeah i mean it, it, well it well it, what's kind of been really interesting we can we can, we can start now okay we can start now yeah, yeah. It, it's quite in i mean you have to have a look at some of the um the interviews i've had from various people because because some of them you might go i'm not trying to sell this to you at all but there are people that you think oh if they remember them and then you hear their story and then you think oh god they're still making music in a very yeah, just like I've got to make my next album. And it's and what I find interesting with a lot of that eighties, those eighties artists is that it was a real thing. It wasn't just a fad. It was like, God, oh, that's that's kind of my life, my calling. However much I try and put it to one side, it comes back and says, Come on, you need to make another record, don't you? And it's like, you know Well, you know, sometimes I could think, you know, I'm get very cynical about people like, you know. I guess people are about cynical sort of appearing to come back, but like with the old band from the 80s with the same haircuts and the same sort of vibe, uh, because as human beings, we all evolve, you know, I'm not a 20 year old kid anymore. And, you know, if, if, if it was my place in life to get the old band back together and let's pretend how we, let's just be like how we were when we were 20. That's sad as fuck. 
You know, mm. and you know, I'm not really, you know, if somebody evolves as an artist and sort of effectively doesn't go away, you know, you're in London or England or whatever, so yeah, it must seem like, oh, that's that guy who went away. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. I'm just to keep doing what I'm doing. You know what I mean? As far as being on a wave of. Uh, you know, uh, being press-driven and, you know, being a little darling of the yes. media industry, that's a different thing. But, you know, we were but, never really very good at that in the old days, so how do you expect me to be good at it now? Yeah, but, but that was a little bit, because you've got the 80s bands, and they're not all the 80, indie bands, but those bands who do those kind of 80s weekenders and they do those things in Norwich and they go around the country, don't they, like the 80s theme? But then on, the people I've been interviewing are those who have sort of, they're not going to get the band back together because, frankly, they don't want to. They've either died or they're not going to ever speak to them again. Yeah. But they still want to make that next yeah. record. It's that that's what they're kind of driven I by. I, I don't understand why you find that unusual. I mean, if somebody enjoys making music uh, and has done so, whether they had any, you know, fame or success or not, you know, it's a it's a valid thing. The fact is, nowadays. You know, the, the process of making music is completely democratised. You don't have to have a record deal anymore. You don't have to be signed. You don't have to be in the media eye to be able to make music because you can make it at home in your studio. It doesn't cost a lot to get a, a laptop and some headphones and, and actually make music, you know. Whereas 20 years ago or 30 years ago, you had to get, you had to like be able to play well enough to actually get noticed and to get signed and then put in a studio that used to cost a grand a day by, and that was paid for by a record company and a whole sort of industry there that was based around working a particular way. That's been shot out of the water, you know, so it's, it's no surprise to me that, you know, people who have, you know, made music in their lives now have a much more of an opportunity to be able to, uh, you know, express themselves that way. And just because they had a little blink of success in the 80s doesn't, or ought not to just sort of pigeonhole them as being, oh, that 80s guy, that guy back in that band. You know, I've, I've done as much as I can over the years to not, you know, I don't publicise myself. I don't talk about myself as Robin Gussie, brackets ex Cocteau twins or Robin Guthrie from the Cocteau twins because I'm fucking Robin Guthrie. You know, I did that a long time ago and I do this now. Yeah. I'm not making solo records because I'm not in a band. This is just me carrying on doing what I ever did. You know, and I can, you know, get a really I can get a wee bit sort of uh, I guess a wee bit shirty is the way to say it. You know, when people just make that constant reference to something that I did, you know, uh let's say, 40 years ago. Now, you know, if I, I don't know how old you are, but if I was to pull, pull you up for being a dick when you were, like, 15 or something, you'd probably say, oh, yeah, I probably was, but nobody fucking noticed, right? <laughs> Whereas I open up my email every day and fucking everybody fucking noticed, you know? <laughs> it's like, okay. Yes. You know, it, it's, that's the first world problem, by the way. You know, it's not, but it is, it does take an emotional toll. Uh, when you are, you know, just going about your business, making, you know, beautiful music, just essentially doing what, what I ever did, but not really being allowed to evolve outside yeah. the confines of a reference to a band that broke up 25 years ago. Sure. But I, I, often, I often say this, and it does sound really trite, but when you talk about Brian Eno, you don't know. Brian Eno, you know the guy from Roxy Music? You don't. You know, so, you know, most of my records I've ever made don't have Cocteau Twins written on them, believe it or not. But, you know, there was a blink of success 
in the UK or whatever in the 80s for that. And you sort of get a little bit damned. And I'm, I don't like it, but I kind of have to be a grown-up and accept it. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to run about to 80s weekenders and things with haircut 100 and shit like that, you know? I don't mean shit like that, as in, I mean, things like that. You know what I mean? Yes, it's I like, got you. You know, know. the old band back together. You know, I don't see myself that way. Uh, apologies to anybody I might have just offended, but you know what I mean? It's just like, I'd, I don't glorify those days of the 80s because the 80s were pretty shit. The 70s were worse. I grew up in Scotland. Uh, I was born in the 60s. You know, I don't glorify the Thatcher years or the 80s like that, like what the 80s really were like. They were, they were pretty grim, and I'm glad my kids don't have to live in that world, you know? Mm. So, you know get the old band back together, we'll get all this sort of neurosis and the upset and the emotional sort of upheaval and, you know, really? You know, that's where I want to sort of define myself in life? I don't think so. No. Anyway. <laughs> no, well, no, complete, I completely yeah. understand because I was kind of involved in a scene, you know, quite a community thing. And, you know, over those years, I've, I've made peace with it in the sense of like, okay, that was a long time ago and I don't want to always go, ooh, every time I think about it. But, I nicely put it in a box. I nicely put it in wait, a box. Wait a moment. There is a wee clue in the title of your radio program, though. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. It's just a thought. But it's, it is just a thought. But it was the curiosity when I started doing it. I think, oh, it'd be interesting to hear some of the stories and some of the kind of, um, yeah, just to, to, to reevaluate some of that kind of time. So it was kind of interesting. But then when I started doing it, I was kind of fascinated with the kind of commitment that people did, the amount of like, okay, I'm going to be incredibly poor for five years, living on the sort of vague streets, squatting, get a band together, you know, and, and that process was, was like, okay, that's a lot harder than I imagined. And, and I was saying to you that people are still making music. And there was quite a few people who I didn't really come across in the 80s because it was like you couldn't just access oh. it like you can now. And then kind of heard their story and then they've told me, you know, what happened later. And then they're still wanting to make music, not as that band, because probably most of them are now dead. Yeah. But just but in Yeah, but that's life, isn't it? I mean, there's lots of things we, we like doing when we're younger that we still like doing when we're older. Yeah, you know, absolutely. There's some things you do less when you're older because you're just less capable. It's, that is just the story of life, surely. You know, it's, I don't think, I mean, is it a calling or whatever like that? I don't know because I've never really gone away from it. But I know what you mean. It's like, you know, it's just, like I said before, it's become so accessible and easy. You know, the thought of, I know several people that were in bands in the 80s that tried to get another band going after their, their bigger band sort of fell apart and just no interest and no luck, uh, you know, because they couldn't get past the first stage of even being able to record demos or something because there was nobody even shown that interest in them. So it's quite a harsh shutout sort of world. I mean, uh, you know, when you, you, you fall from grace quite quickly, Mm. Uh, because this only lasts 15 minutes, apparently. So, you know, it's it, you do that. But the combination of people's tenacity and the combination of the available technology and the available outlets and distribution, you know, the fact that we can put things straight onto YouTube or straight onto Bandcamp or any of these sort of things, that these are all really, really healthy. And, you know, I think that somebody who's been making music for, you know, 30 years or 20 years or something like that, you know, if, if nothing else, it's like if you were doing any other job for 20 years, don't you think you would get pretty good at it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have noticed that for the most part, every single band that I've seen 
that's a kind of reunion band that's got back together are 10 times better now than they were at the time. You know, just so much more. It's just, just better because they can, you know, they've spent a long time doing what they do, you know. Yes. But coming back to one of those points is like one starts somewhere. So you think, oh, I'll call this show da 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 And then it kind of develops from there. So, you know, I've done lots of because I'm obsessed with David Bowie. So I've done lots of David Bowie related artists who were who played with him or knew him or all sort of worked with him. So it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit kind of, you know, I, I do have a little bit kind of artistic kind of freedom on that because it's like, well, who cares? I just want to put, you know. I know, but you know what? What you've got is infectious enthusiasm and that goes a long way in the music industry, especially involving older people, you know. Yes. Just to, to, be, to get older and remain uh, enthusiastic and open-minded, is, that's, quite a, that's quite a feat. I, I've kind of not really you know, uh, excelled in that department myself. <laughs> but, uh, I always, but I always remember John Walters, the, the producer, John Peel, saying, if he ever hits puberty, we're in trouble. And I think that having that kind of curiosity <laughs> is always exciting, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, and, yeah. And to be, but the it other... Is, but, it is, but, you know, that is if you consider the, the thing that you're interested in, it's the same as what everybody else is interested. You know, I could say, I'm, I'm a total fanboy when it comes to writers. You know, because I read lots of books, I don't listen to lots of records because I need influences from a different place. I don't want to just recycle other people's musical ideas by listening to other music. Mm. I kind of grew out of listening to other music when I started to really, uh, one people, it's one man's go up your own ass and the other person's, you know, musical evolution. Do you know what I mean? When I started to close out, other things and become more focused on what I wanted Cocteau Twins to be, right? As in, you know, you know, never, I didn't know what the influences were musically, but they certainly got less and less external, you know, and as an artist myself now, I'm a very uh, kind of resourceful when it comes to my influences, but, but they're not based in listening to other people's music. No. So, they're based in, in traveling and reading and, you know, just everything that I experience in my life. And I try to keep my life as rich as possible and sort of doing, you know, interesting things and where it's all possible, taking something from them that, you know, comes back through my music. Yes. You know, and experiences like if you have someone close dying and, you know, things with your children growing up and all this sort of life stuff, you know, comes back through me emotionally and goes into the work that I do. Yes. I don't think that's uncommon. At least it seems perfectly natural to me. If it's different for everybody else, then then I've got a few problems perhaps. (laughs) You know, but that's how it is for me. And it sort of was for most of my uh, adult life. Well, I think just on that point, I think one edits a bit more as you get older. So there was a time where going out and meeting lots of people seemed quite fun. And now yeah. it's, it's my idea of hell. So I don't do that so much. But then I rem- reminisce a bit and think, oh, we used to do this and that. And, you know, we were always having a bit of a home open house and having big events or trying mm. to create something. But now I just think I can't be bothered. It's just too much. You know, everyone has a story like that and everyone has a soundtrack to that story as well. So, of course, I understand that if... If I put out some new music in 2021 and somebody who listened to the Cocteau Twins in 1984 hears it, they've got 
that is part of the soundtrack to their sort of adolescence or their college years or something like that. And of course, it's going to, you know, resonate a little bit more than hearing something new. But myself as an artist, I just have to close those, you know, I've got all my experiences from that time as well. And it was really, really cool. It was great. I'm very proud of it. But it was also, you know, a nightmare. And it was just growing up, you know, it was being a 20-something and... Uh, you know, a rather sort of closeted 20-something, sort of, you know, kept away from the real world, kept in a little bubble of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, it's just, I started to become a grown-up in my 30s, really, when, when most people would have started in their 20s. Uh, you know, because there's always somebody there to do things for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, I want to buy a house. Which one? That one. Okay. Right? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> You, know, you move in and the kettle's on. It's like, oh, you know, it's not, it was a bit. It's, it's of, going to be like that for like the rest that. of your life, bit, isn't it? A bit cotton wool. It was a bit cotton wool. The the uh, the hard lessons of growing up came a little bit later for yeah. probably all of but a lot of people do because we didn't have this narrative as we get older of like going oh to be honest you know going to the toilet in the middle of the night becomes a new thing seeing parents <laughs> get seeing parents getting older and their vulnerability yeah. becomes a new thing and that doesn't that's like oh right okay i can't yeah. be self-indulgent 20 or even a 30 something i i'm now suddenly realizing that I need to appreciate this or take this a bit more seriously and I can't yeah, yeah. be that person anymore. You know, wobbling, you know, when you get up in the morning with a bit of a dodgy ankle, he's like, oh, that's now a thing. You know, I, from my perspective, I could meet people who were perhaps great fans of the music I was making in the 80s. And for them, I represent that. And, and obviously I'm just this old dude with white hair and a beard who's not, that person anymore you know who's done their life and all their life things as well i uh, can't help i don't know if people get disappointed but i think that it's sort of you know i'm not the same person but i've but that was my life then it's just yes you no know, i don't know i'm, I'm fluffing up this answer because i don't really know i don't like no. just getting old because getting old is like it's a double-edged sword all the things you mentioned about getting up for a pee in the night and and you know having loved ones getting really really old and but also sort of growing old looking back at you know things you've done in the past and feeling proud about it seeing your kids growing up and you know well it's yeah like i say double-edged sword i'd yes. think this applies probably everybody on the planet not some fool with a guitar you know no but yes, but but interesting when you were just saying about influences, because when I played was playing your new album, which I have all week, obviously, Pearl Diving, there was there was two okay, you might get really Pearl Diving. Pardon? Pearl Diving. One word. Pearl Diving. <laughs> Okay, but, but interesting enough, when I started listening to that, I did then sort of go, God, I remember the 1994 Yang Garbrick with the Hilliard Ensemble. And I went back to that album and played it again because it kind of reminded me of that, as well as bits of kind of the Betty Blue soundtrack and Eric Satie. So it was kind of interesting thinking, oh, God, yes, I remember that kind of spacious kind of quality of kind of relax you know um so there you go so there you go I'll yeah talk. well you know it's it's i'm not really aware of how uh what i do fits in anywhere i haven't really ever been apart from in the very very early days of the cocktails we were very conscious that we 
didn't want to mash in with any of the sort of scenes that were there at the time, you know, the goth thing or the sort of indie, you know, jangly indie thing or or the or the sort of pop, you know, the Spandau ballets and the things like that. We just didn't have any affinity with any of those things and probably stopped thinking about it. And then after a while, I just kind of realised we didn't have to think of ourselves aligned to any sort of, you know, trend or movement or anything. Uh, which I think was frustrating for some of the others at the, at the time as well, because, you know, I've got my level of being a music fan was considerably lower than theirs, perhaps, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I still, to this day, I don't, I, I just don't see how it all fits in, and I, I can't overthink this, you know. Right. But when... like how, how, what would I do to sort of change my music to make it fit into whatever is relevant and uh, relevant to who exactly? I mean, why am I doing this again? I'm doing it for me, you know. I'm doing it, you know. I'm doing it for me. Yeah. This is what I I like doing. This it makes me feel good, you know. The fact of the matter that I can share it with people that enjoy it as well. Ultimately, it comes secondary. I think this is why. Just recently, I've been releasing music that I did over the last seven or eight years, but I just didn't release. I didn't. <laughs> I just didn't bother to release it. Doesn't mean I didn't do it. Just means it was there was not a right time to release it and I didn't really yes. have to release it. So when did but you... recently, recently I've become aware that, you know, when I get a little bit of a boost and I realise that people are actually wanting to buy my records, I think, well, oh, you know what, I did a couple of good things like a couple of years ago, I should put them out or I'll do this and I get sort of excited again. So Yes. So with... with it's like buses. It's like, it's like waiting on a bus and then three comes. I know. I'm at it's like Prince, isn't it, really? But, you know, slightly differently. But, um, yeah, I don't, he just kept releasing triple albums all the time, didn't he? But when did you then write and record Universal, was it Universal Road with Mark Gardner? That, that was to 2015. Right, so that was one that was kind of released at the same time that you... Yeah, we had done one track together, I think, perhaps the year before, because we'd met each other. Oh, we kind of, we'd always bumped into each other in the, the old days, as it were. And then we met each other when I was on tour playing in Oxford, where Mark uh, is from. And we thought, oh, because he'd been living in France as well. So we had that in common to talk about. So we kind of ended up doing a track together and that kind of worked out quite nicely. Then we did an album. And yes. it was like, it was very, very natural. He was, this was before his ride reunion comeback thing, uh, you know, bands going away and then coming back again. It was before that uh, and he was doing his sort of, one man acoustic sort of singer songwriter thing and you know so when you've worked with say on that example mark and then this album which is kind of on your own what's what's the difference in the process of putting this together i mean with the new album has it been something that you started recording and writing in lockdown or uh i would actually uh mark will understand if i say this because my process is no different at all to when the day that I started making music, especially specifically from the time that I made like Head Over Heels and onwards. From that point on, I've just been sitting here in the studio in front of a mixing desk and doing my thing. So obviously working with Mark is a different thing because it was songs, it's a male voice, not writing instrumental music. You know, there's a different sort of energy, same as when I've been working with Harold Budd, different energy, you Mm -hmm. know. uh, But the actual process is... The same, you know. I'm still sort of doing this, 
Um, I'll say this because I'm sitting in my studio just now, for those of you who don't have video here, I'm sitting in my studio, so I'm waving my arms about, but I'm just sitting here, and I usually sit in, I've got, I, see, I've got here, I'm going to base there, yeah. I don't have to stand up to get them, and that's me at my happiest. <laughs> your happy place, your happy place. Well, so, no, did Mark come yeah. and sit with you, and did you sort of yeah. spend t- time together yeah, to yeah. write that material? Yeah, well, you know what? It's a different type of uh, different type of project, different artists, different everything. Uh, when I spent a couple of years with Siobhan DeMai doing Violet Indiana, that was very much sit in the same room together with a guitar and try to write some songs. Yes. And I've never done that before because the cocktails didn't work like that. So this was all completely new territory for me. So I kind of, you know, essentially kind of, I was attracted to working with Siobhan because she had never heard of the Cocteau Twins, had no sort of reference at all. Uh, her older sister had said, oh, you got to go and meet that guy, he's in a great band. Oh, what band? Because she liked soul music and, you know, she liked Shirley Bassey and, you know, Torch songs and she had no idea. She wasn't an indie kid at all. She still isn't an indie kid. Uh, indie lady. So that's an indie lady. Uh, you know, uh, and, it, you know, for that different type of energy, that was a really interesting thing for me to do because I'd never written songs for somebody before yes. because uh, writing for Cocteau Twins is writing instrumental music and then Elizabeth coming and doing her thing and then at which point maybe I would take out things that I've done or Simon had done or you know you match it to what was Liz was bringing into it but it was not like sitting down and going right I'm going to make these chords because I think Liz will do something good on it it was not it was making instrumental music so yeah, absolutely. We just had a huge trust that she would do something excellent with it and take it like forward to the next step and do things that we hadn't even, you know, considered. So that's like that in that sense, it's like, uh, you know, really the same sort of process for me. Yes, I, I can't. Think. When when I've done other collaborations with uh, John Fox, for instance, you know that he's very very stylized for his kind of music. I'm fairly stylized, you could say, for my kind of music. So we come together and we just try not to be on each other's toes, you know. I'm much better at collaborating now that I'm a bit older than I was when I was younger. Yeah. Because when, when I was younger, I just want you to control everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of probably right. And now, and and now you're I don't, bright. Get, I, you're I don't probably... get myself, I don't to get myself to control issues now because I don't have to fight with anyone except myself, so. Yes, and you're, you're, you're in a moment. But did you, because actually I've been listening to the, the, the album you did with Mark quite a lot, and it's just, a, a fan, I just think it's a fantastic album. Did you, what was the, because you know, the, uh, the actual title one, Universal Road, did you, mm-hmm. was that the one that you did first and then think? No, the, the one that we did first was called The Places You Go. Right. And did, I, no, is it on the album? I'm not even sure if it's on the album. Places You Go. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. And uh, that was, uh, yeah. <laughs> so that isn't yeah. on the album. But I then, you know, because I was just listening to, you know, the, the solo projects you've been doing on albums for the last 20 years and thinking, blimey, this, you know, again, I hadn't, I had to confess, I hadn't come across that and then was listening to it. God, this is amazing. This is, you know. All of my, all, all of my collaboration records are sort of, it's work between friends, people that get on with each other and like each other. I don't kind of find myself working coldly with, you know, musicians or other artists that I don't have a connection with on a social level. 
No, I wouldn't imagine. God, you get to an age where you just, you know, it's not even worth it. So then with this, this the new album, when did this come into kind of being? When did you start writing it? I Was this... This year. This year. This year. Yeah, I sort of... Uh, I think I'd mentioned before that over the years, over the last sort of seven or eight years, because it was the last official Robin Guthrie instrumental album, 2012, but since then, I'd done music for movies. I'd done music with Howard Budd, done music with Mark Gardner, done um, a soundtrack to a TV show. I'd done loads of little bits of music just for my own kind of pleasure, thinking, oh, maybe I'll put this out. But then, you know, do two tracks, and then I didn't really, I had to go and do something else in life, you know. And uh, for a few years, I just, you know, just took photographs and developed pictures and really enjoyed creativity that way. Still did little bits of music, but I didn't really uh, think that I was, I was struggling with the idea of the music industry and the, you know, uh, I was coming to the realization that I could make uh, more money selling my guitar than playing it. So uh, I was a wee bit nonplussed about just the way that I could spend like nine months making a record, uh, which would just come out and effectively disappear. Mm. And, you know, uh, the amount of heartache and emotion that goes into one of my albums, it's, it was just quite frankly not worth it. I just thought, fuck that. You know, there's more to life. Uh, yes. But there's a lot of travelling, a lot of other stuff. My family, my kids are all grown up and they need a lot of time, you know. My youngest was going through a baccalaureate, so she needed a lot of support, uh, you know, at school and things like that. All the old life stuff, you know. Absolutely. But all the way, all the way tipping away and doing one song every couple of weeks or something or just you know so just a couple of stuff anyhow yeah sort of little watershed and all that was uh, how passing last winter and in the new year I was just feeling a wee bit in the dumps not like you know just more uh, on a human level than a you know just like that's a bit you know makes you think about your mortality and all that sort of thing and uh in the early uh, months of this year, I just decided just to shake things up a bit and I changed my studio about I got it in my mixing desk and I sort of like just changed a couple of things and thought, oh, I'm going to do some music, you know. If it's not now, when's it going to be? Mm. <laughs> and then, I mean, because cause the emotional state, and, uh, you know, slightly confess some hidden part, part of my past. I was, I, I did sort of hang out with a lot of kind of new age hippies during the sort of 80s and 90s. And we did a lot of kind of visualization kind of stuff, you know, listening to sort of music being very calm and then sort of listen to the new album. Again, there's an amazing tranquility and, you know, really nice vibe to it. I mean, does that in any way, which reminded me of my past, um, did, that, did that also reflect your kind of emotional and spiritual state at all? Uh... My emotional and spiritual state has been, been, for the last 30 odd years, been fairly serene and, you know, I have my ups and downs like everybody else as well. I, you know, I like, like I touched on before about yeah, people's reference points for you. I got that sort of reference point of like, oh, being a junkie, sort of being a drug head, blah, blah, all this sort of thing. Well, you know, that younger young man had a couple of years of darkness, I'm sure, but you know, I'm going to be 60 on my birthday, which is fucking awesome if I make it, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, you don't really carry all that baggage with you into your life if you do your life properly. If you want to mope around and 
be nostalgic uh, and, you know, see everything you've done in your life as a burden, then that's your choice. But I don't do that. Uh, (laughs) How does that serve me in any way? No. uh, Or those around me as well. But the thing about a burden is often there's there's kind of there's sometimes a need of either processing or a period of time to make things from that period which can have been quite charged slightly not feel so charged because you know you you realize that you need to kind of you need to make peace with it somehow you know there's the yeah, it's about, I think roughly about twenty five years you need I think something like that <laughs> but you know what uh, time does pass and you know you move forward i can tell you a little i was going to say i can tell you having done doing this show oh shit sorry i threw, threw this at you um having done did this show the c86 show most of the people i've interviewed kind of said to me i wouldn't have i wouldn't have done this interview five years ago i just but now i feel like okay and i think okay so it's you're right it's about 25 30 years from that period of being in a band to actually wanting to talk about it no, no, I, I can talk about it if somebody asks me the right questions or if somebody doesn't come in with a, a prejudice. I mean, in the sense of pre, being pre You know, talking to me after reading about me on the internet or in books or biographies and things, and then talking to me, uh, two different things because the... the uh, established narrative about me is quite harsh i think you know uh yeah definitely quite harsh right and, you know there's a lot of shit talk you know uh you know my be, me being this me being that and the, the drug thing as well i mean you know to my uh i don't know my uh understanding of that is that 25 years ago, you know, I did go to rehab because I wasn't dealing well with life for whatever reason. And uh, I made a foolish mistake because I told people, because I came out and I was so happy to like be clean and be off drugs and things like that. And I was just like sharing my joy with people. And that is just from that moment onward, it's been turned against me, really. I've been defined as as being sort of a drug user. This 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 old dude, yeah, right. No, I don't do that. I don't live that way. No, well, absolutely. You know, how dare you define me by that? You know, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe that was useful excess. I don't know. But it's, there's no relevance to my life or my goodness. No, absolutely no, and and um, and to be honest, I didn't. You know, I mean, I do focus mostly on on people's music thing. I did. It's strange when you said that. I did an interview a few years ago with Leo Sayer. I know, and um, they said, for God's sake, don't mention the Big Brother moment. And it's like Big, I have no idea what's. The... So I had to Google, <laughs> and I went, Oh yeah, he gets into a fight, and it's like fine, okay, I won't mention that to Leo Sayer. So that was fine. So, um, but no, I'm not really into kind of back, you know, the tabloid gossip thing. I mean, what's always kind of interesting, okay, because you did sort of just mention it earlier i mean i was born 64 so i'm now in my late 50s my mm. my early musical moment in life was the glam period of sweet slave t-rex and um gary glitter obviously yeah, yeah, but luckily, yeah. david bowie was my first single and my first love was yeah. what was your kind of you know it's just kind of curious where you and how you were the same thing rocks the music bowie you know i think first single was baby love uh, and it was closely followed by silver machine and i think that's really kind of cool because 
that sort of makes complete sense. I sort of chose what I was going to do with music with my first two singles when I was like 10 or whatever. Was that the Rubettes, um, Baby Love? No, it was the Supremes. Supreme. Oh, God, yeah, sorry, I was thinking of... Uh, yes. Somewhere between Hawkwind and the Supremes. Yes. Kind of got, yeah, that would work. But yeah, like yourself, uh, you know, Slade and all this sort of pop thing. I kind of read what, more towards pop uh, a bit at first because I was like 10 or 12. I had an older brother who was into like the Zeppelin and Genesis, so I didn't kind of want to be like him. So. No, I had an older brother <laughs> into sort of Genesis, yes, Wishbone Ash, Barkley James Harvest. He was seven years old. Yeah, that, that was the one, Barkley James Harvest, that was one of his as well. So, uh, so it's like, you know, it's just, you know, being a kid and, you know, it's, it's not, I don't know that anything like that is relevant to uh, what we go on and do in our life. It's just interesting nostalgia, that's all. And it you is- know what, I don't, as an older person, I when I was you know, in my forties, I had no time for nostalgia at all. But as an older person, I quite enjoy it. You know, you know, we put on a Channel Four, uh, you know, documentary thing about you know life in the seventies or something, and it's like, oh yeah, fuck me, I remember that. That's yeah, it's, you can do that with the privilege of age. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, did you? When did <laughs> I was the... trying to remember what your favourite chocolate bar was in the seventies? Things like that. I'm an old person now, so I can do that, and I'm fine with that, but I do have other qualities. I know, not just curly-whirlies and um, mm. marathon bars. Um, yeah, so so what part of Scotland were you from, by the way? Which, I uh, just... Central Scotland, uh, in a, a small sort of industrial town called Grangemouth, which is between Edinburgh and Glasgow. Right. So quite uh, downtrodden at that time. Uh, yeah, it was pretty harsh. Yes. But that's what it was. It was it was Thatcher's Britain, you know. Yes. <laughs> there was there was Northern Ireland. There was all this sort of stuff going on. There was the winter of discontent. There was no fuel, considering we lived in an oil refinery time, but we didn't have any fuel. It was mm-hmm. like quite ironic. All the fuel went to England, you see. So, yeah. Yes, I know. And when did you, when did the guitar appear in your life? I just kind of curious. It was like when did. Uh, this- when I was maybe about 16, my older brother had a guitar and he didn't play it and it was kept under his bed and I just used to sneak it out and try to do something with it and, you know, until he caught me and sort of gave me a slap, you know, that kind of thing. That's just childhood stuff, you know. Uh, I don't specifically uh, remember the first guitar I had, really. I think it was probably his one. Uh, And... You know, being a big music fan and moving into like in the mid seventies, like you know, punk rock. Even before the punk rock thing, I got into the British R and B sort of thing. You know, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, Doctor Feelgood. You know, music like that. And then Doctor, there was like Doctor Strange things, things coming from uh, from the US, like uh, Stooges and things like that. It was you know, and I like this sort of 60s stuff from America, the like Nuggets, kind of the Standells and things like that. I got into that sort of musical thing, which is quite far away from the sort of art schooly sort of Bowie and Roxy music thing that I'd been into earlier. But that was kind of just like the, the way into sort of punk. It was kind of high energy kind of rock. It was a way into punk. And at that point, I was just like, 
I was just like a little sort of fish on a on a fishing hook with that because I'm like, you know, in my mid-teens, you know, pubescent sort of into music. It's, music at this point is the only way you can define yourself because we didn't have, you know, the type of tribalism we had was very to do with music or football teams because yeah. we could because we didn't have video games and we didn't have Facebook and we didn't have the internet and all these sort of things. All the over thirty fives know this, so. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the under, no, and we, we, and the under thirty fives are not listening. So, fuck <laughs> them. Um, so, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. Well, I did see. In the, but, I did see a documentary with Bill Shankly recently, probably quite. I don't know, a couple of months ago, and he said, you know, you either went down the pit or you played football. He had it in a very strong accent. Yeah, yeah. That was your choice in life, you know. So you really did. The make... way that we uh, identified with each other was there was very few choices we could make in life because. You know, the length that you wore your hair and the music you listened to. So I sort of fell in with like-minded people that, you know, liked a lot of the music that, that well, that was our sort of tribalism. This time I met Will Heggie, you know, we were at school, we liked to say sim- similar sort of things. So I met Elizabeth, she liked similar sort of things, you know, and it's like that sort of pulls you together. Whereas in today's world now, I mean, there's it's so diverse, the things that people can have in common you know, from gaming through to every single different uh, genre of music that's out there just now. And it's quite, it seems to be, and I talk to young people that I know in my life, and I talk to my children, let's face it, uh, you know, the demarcation that goes between different genres is really, really tight. It's like, Dad, that's not such and such. That's such and such. It's like, oh, okay, sorry. You know, whatever. I'm Dad. You know, that's yes. fine. Well, I've actually, on, on that music front, I do find it a bit strange and trying to understand it a little bit because we watched a film the other night, Cruella, okay? And the soundtrack was all the 60s, quite obscure 60s stuff, I suppose. I mean, not really obscure, but like the zombies, you know, the Rolling Stones track, you know, She's a Rainbow, Time of the Seasons, you know, and I kind of had to get there and look through and think, that's amazing. This is a, this is a current film for young people and an old person like me watching it, which is okay, it's not weird. And it's like, but all the soundtrack's like over 50 years old. And I sort of think that's music doesn't... Ask, you, uh, no, ask yourself, who's the music supervisor? The people that are making music, movies now are the people that were our age, you know, when, you know, they, they, they're putting lots of 80s music in films now because... People that were music fans in the 80s have now risen to the position of being able to make movies and things. You know, it's just the way that things move forward. But then there was but there's I, I, I grew up with my uh, parents listening to, you know, Glenn Miller and big band stuff, you know, like this Frank Sinatra and things like that. And then when they were getting older, when they were sort of like, uh, I guess, turning their 50s or something, they would go back to like, uh, you know, when you were talking about 80s music nights, they would go to their 50s music nights. Yes. And, you know, just groove off on their sort of 50s music. This is the way it goes. Because the one thing that, that, that happened, which I realised was quite critical in, in the cultural context of, the, of that period, the 70s, 80s, even 90s, was the gatekeepers. You know, there was like three music papers, wasn't weeklies, and there was Record Mirror. But there was also John Peel, and every city and town in the UK had an indie alternative night. So obviously... John Peel was kind of one of those people that must have been like to get to him. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was huge. That was absolutely huge. Uh, you know, as well as getting the music papers like a day later in Scotland and you got them in in, in London, uh, you know, John Peel was like the, the link uh, to what was going on. 
and it was also related to what we were reading about in those, like you, like you say, gatekeeper uh, papers and things like that. That was that was the absolute link. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, vital. And I don't know if that is sort of served anymore, or if you, people need that because the internet's there. But it was as a form of curation. I mean, he was second to none. He moved with the times as well because in, in the mid seventies he was playing all these chaps with like long hair and flares and things like that. And yet, you know, in a, a couple of years after that he was playing, you know, the Clash or whatever. It's like in the fall, so yes. it's like he, he knew his audience, his target demographic were. Kind of was, I think it was the Ramones and the Dam that sort of upset his Grateful Dead followers. So there you go. That that lost that generation. They just peeled away. Yeah, but I mean, that's just the same of somebody who's really, really passionate, but also really wants to keep his job as well. Yes. You know, so it's, it's good. Uh, he didn't want to go to know, radio. And, and, and like, you know, it can never really sort of stress how important that was for me as a young musician or somebody getting into music just to hear what he was playing you know that's the first time I heard the birthday party was him playing it you know and that was so sort of life-changing because I was just of that age where I was so vulnerable and sort of like looking for something that I just grabbed it but you know without that sort of curation or whatever uh, I think the whole UK music scene would have been different throughout the the 80s uh, it wouldn't have existed and not with it the would have been a it would have existed, but it would have been a different kind of thing. Yes. But I think the Job Seekers Allowance, Enterprise Allowance, being on the dole for a few years did also help people focus for a very, you know, like a year or two. And also, as you mentioned earlier, there wasn't plan B like, oh, that's fine. I'll I'll get another job because there wasn't any other jobs. I'll go to university. It's like, what's the point? You know, it was like, well, I'll just drink some booze and being a band and that seems to be quite a common narrative of the that early 80s period and that's why we have Bogshed big flame a common narrative of that age at that time you know just you know it's uh yeah form of escapism I knew that you know we were quite uh honest at the time that you know we, we just wanted to get out of the town that we saw the sort of shithole town at that time Mm. I feel a bit ashamed of saying now, but I mean, you know, at the time that's how it seemed uh, to us young people uh, wanting to get out, and that seemed a way to sort of get out. Yeah, but there was no long term plan. I always have to keep myself in check, you know, because it could sound like there was some long term plan to be sort of successful with music. A long term plan, our entire bucket list when we were like 17 was to make a record. Yes. That was it. You know, everything after that was just fluff and, you know, it didn't exist because we'd never considered it. Yeah. Well, I kind of, I, I get I gathered that it is kind of get a single, get it played on John Peel. Oh my God, I've got a session. That's amazing. The first album. That's amazing. I can't believe we've even got this far. And it's like, so there isn't any, let, let's sit down and have, as we call it, well, some bands have mentioned band therapy, because that would be a good idea. It's like, forget band therapy. We're just going to go and do the next album and sign mm. another slightly unfortunate record deal. So there's, you know, there isn't that element of it actually. But then as, as with great, kind of art sometimes or music there is that intensity that that you know obviously with the Beatles you know there's this new you know only eight hour film talking about their last album but most people think god they I can't believe they lasted that long actually even though it's like oh and what they would have done later which is a pointless conversation it was a bit like god I'm just amazed they've got that far so with with your perhaps, perhaps people had more time to just uh let records breathe and let them get into the the psyche 
you know, because there wasn't like a million bands out there making records, because as we know now, looking back, it's like, well, bands did have to go through that whole sort of jumping through hoops of actually learning how to play and sing together and then getting noticed by an A&R man, getting put in a recording studio, getting given money to, you know, function as a band or to, to record something. And there's a whole, you know, because you couldn't just make a record on your own until the mid-70s, I would say that's when sort of indie bands, sort of bands started to be able to make a single or something, get a single press themselves. Yes. I'm not aware of that happening ever before that. So, you know, records and bands that were successful had more time to mature their, their the length of time that their uh, the records were out there, I guess, before the next thing came along to distract people because there was quite simply less competition, if you like, I, I guess. And when did you feel, you know, you know, because there's the beginning part, which is often, you know, fake it as you make it until you make it kind of philosophy in life because you think, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. Was there a moment where you just suddenly thought, actually, I feel pretty good about this. I feel like I can call myself an artist, a musician. You know, I kind of understand the workings of the studio because I know seeing, you know, like people like Joy Division were really, you know, Ian Curtis was so upset. I, 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 I take what you just said as two different questions. Understanding how the studio worked and knowing what I wanted to do came very, very early. Uh, actually being able to use the word artist, right, in the first person has just come literally in the last couple of months, I think. <laughs> you know, I've been saying it in interviews I've been doing. I'm the type of artist, I've never said that in my life, it's really cringy, but, you know, I guess if I don't, have, I can't call myself a musician because I don't really know how to play music. I can't play other people's music, you know, and I'm not really interested in playing music uh, per se. Mm-hmm. I mean, creating the thing that I do using musical instruments. There's a slight difference there, and it's about sort of five years at music school, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it was the uh, yeah. I missed that. Uh, I missed that class. I think. Yeah. I, I do have my school report for when I was sixteen, and I've got like a D for music. So. Oh no, that's so shocking. Oh no, I, I I wear that one quite proudly. Yes, but then the creating the sort of hearing not music in your head in that kind of oh that's a bit weird. But you know, just thinking this is the sound I want. Did that come quite quickly, or were you able to sort of learn how to then? That came, that came quite quickly because I kind of knew quite a lot before or compared to other people because I was one of those rare people that was kind of nerdy and into the idea of home recording. So I had a tape recorder. You know, one of the first things I, I got, you know, when we started to do anything was like a reel-to-reel tape recorder and I started to cut tapes and edit things. And, you know, I wasn't really fearful of technology and I'm still not really. I've always been, that, I've always had that attitude. Uh, I feel uh, when I first got really hands-on with my music, which was around the time of Head Over Heels, because, you know, I'd been a sort of child in an adult's world up to then. It was like, oh, no, you can't touch the mixing desk. I'm like, if that mixing desk, if that channel blew just now, I could repair it. But I've never never actually touched it. I pushed the fader up and down. So I got my sort of uh, kickstart into that, thanks to a man called John Turner, who was a sort of mentor. He was a studio owner in Edinburgh, and he let me, he allowed me to sit at the mixing desk and start to push things around. And, and if I didn't know something, he would like kind of show me, and I just started to discover my own way through it. And I loved it. 
and to a certain degree, I still do. You know, yeah. it's like really, but I never had a fear. I had, I found out there was, I was doing lots of things the wrong way according to the books and according to, you know, conventional wisdom. Uh, but I didn't really, you know, I, I was just young and headstrong, I guess. I just thinking, no, I want to do it this way. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, do you, I mean, with, with that sort of body of work, because I know it's probably one of those ones that, because actually for me, Treasure was the kind of album that I sort of, you know, lived with for a sort of quite a period of time. Is there any particular album that you think, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's us when we really, the planets have lined up and it's absolutely working and, and that's the body of work, well, that's the one that I think is, is perfect-ish? No, I don't. Uh, I kind of like... There's a few things that value more than less, but everything's part of its own story. So it's like they're all relevant in my head because they all are a particular time and place. You know, I don't, uh, I don't find myself, I never ever play my music because why would I need to? I know it, I made it, I don't need to hear it again. Yes. You know, and you know, so it's like I don't judge in the way that other people do i think other people follow up on like what you just said about treasure there you know it touched you at a particular time in that life so you hold a, a strong souvenir a strong memory to it and uh yeah that's the same for most cocktail twins things and you know fans that you know still follow my music now you know they've all got the story about how it affected them in their life you know yes that's when I met my wife. That's when I went to college. And, you know, and in that way, I don't. It doesn't belong to me anymore. You know, yeah. it really doesn't belong to me anymore. On that point, because earlier this year in Las Vegas, there was a new massive hotel that opened and Miley Cyrus, you know, did an opening guest spot and she did, you know, Heaven or Las Vegas. And, I, got, I got lots of people sort of like, just one morning sort of like sent me this message and I'm like, ah, okay. Well, who's that again? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea who she was. So. No, fair enough. No, I just wonder because it's kind of, you know, I suppose, you know, it, it's kind oh, of. Oh, listen, when, when somebody does a cover version, it's always really flattering. Uh, however, I think that our sound has always been a bit so stylized that it's quite difficult. So if someone takes our song and really does their own thing to it, I can think that's a really powerful thing and that's really, really good. If someone takes our song and tries to make it sound like us, then usually kind of is a bit, well, I think it's ill-advised, you know, <laughs> covering something that you really like, uh, covering things that are, I don't know, in my view, I don't do very, very many cover versions, principally because the few that I have done in my life, I've just considered to be kind of mistakes. Uh, because, you know, you're putting yourself up against something that is iconic and, uh, you know, you know, you can't, you know. So if you can take something, if you're uh, a smart enough artist to be able to take a song and then completely make it your own, I think that's, that's, that's for me when cover versions work. As 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 I probably mentioned earlier, you know, there's there's kind of um, my love of David Bowie and that kind of yeah, and as when mm-hmm. when we sort of realised that he'd passed away and then started reflecting on on parts of his life. I mean, with yourself, when you sort of came out of being in a band and became a solo artist, did that take 
a while to sort of get used to the fact that you were no longer going to be part of a unit, but this was going to be you on the next journey, part of your journey? I think it was, I'm not sure if it was no longer being part of the unit because the unit was Elizabeth and me because we were a couple. So any sort of thoughts of band or anything like that was fairly far down the, uh, the scale of, you know, uh, importance because we have a child mm -hmm. and we were making decisions not to be together. So anything to do with the band at that point is just, you know, it's just background noise really. Uh, so I didn't really have much of a chance to think about uh, these sort of things. About like, What I do know is that uh, it was less of a uh, less of a question of what can I do without band to what can I do without a level of success that means there's going to be people, you know, helping me or being interested in doing anything with me. You know, trying to go and start to do some, you know, uh, things on my own after that proved to be very difficult because every single door was just slammed in my face, you know. You know, management dropped, uh, record company dropped, the publisher dropped, you know, everything just, you know, over, just overnight. Uh, so, yeah, it was kind of perhaps not the people, it was more the, the context of like, well, if I'm going to do this, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I felt uh, perhaps like, oh, I just got to start fucking knocking on people's doors and trying to get a record deal, or like a teenager. It's like, oh shit, <laughs> that's sort of, that's not much fun. And uh, it wasn't at all. Uh, but, you know, I have worked and I have, gradually taking responsibility for my life. And, uh, you know, as an adult for my family, I've been with my wife for 27 years, I've built a family. I have built uh, uh, sort of a safety net by making sure that I get, I keep the rights to all the music that I've made. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't give the rights to anybody. And I've been doing that since about 2005. Uh, and especially like all the digital rights and all the sort of things, which were nothing. Nobody was interested or even knew what digital was back in 2005. I got in there and secured all the rights for all the work that I would do in the future. And I've been able to, it was a very small audience, relatively small audience, you know, piece myself uh, together. Yes. Uh, more and more start to make some sort of contact with, uh, you know, directly, you know, whereas I started to use Bandcamp last year and that's been fantastic because finally I have a sort of feedback loop from people that actually, you know, respond to me putting music out because previously it's been a little bit like uh, in a vacuum, you know, I'm spend a year making a record, put it out and then I hear nothing back. It's like, <laughs> what just happened there, you know? So that in a way, and becoming older and becoming, I don't know, uh, less less neurotic or less, I don't know, it, it has felt in a way like I've been, there's been some sort of exile going on in terms of like, uh, there's quite a few things gone against, you know, I had like a lot of offers to get the old band back together over the years because that seems to be what people are interested in. But 
I was kind of stuck by what I'm doing and uh, uh, just to, trying to establish some sort of interest in what I do now for being relevant about me now. It might not be relevant about the rest of the world, but it's usually from the heart and from the hip about what I'm doing now. Yes. You know, and if I have to play that to a relatively small audience compared to what I've done in the past, that's fine because they love it. <laughs> you know, I'm getting an awful lot of affirmation and an awful lot of love about that. And I would say in the last 20 years, I've not had so much of that, or not in a quantifiable way that I can sort of see and touch. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan of social media uh, because I'm a bit shy, a bit sort of reluctant to talk to people but I'm stepping through that and trying to sort of take that on mm-hmm. um, and I feel a bit dumb because <laughs> it's like I've got to post something but I'm just doing the same as what I did yesterday it's not really very exciting <laughs> <laughs> so it's I'm not like I don't I'm not, if I was 14 I would be really good at this you know but I'm not 14 you know I'm sort of come along with all my uh old school sort of uh, neurosis when it comes to the public. Well, I think it's a lot like a lot of artists. I think they just want to say, look, this is my art. Because I know, you know, I, you know, I love Suzanne Vega's some of, you know, some of her stuff or quite a lot of it. And she's, you know, having to tr- do a bit of, you know, like TikTok, you know, and she's kind of, it's like, actually, Suzanne, I'm not sure if TikTok's going to work for you. Is it really, you know, you're just going to have to get together with Jeremy Lennon sort of get out there and do some dates here and there and and re-record the albums you did in the early in the 80s because now you can have the ownership of them and just kind of become that artist and I know with Hazel O'Connor who I remember interviewing her and she she got to that point where she's like I might have to become a cleaner or something and then she saw an artist in Edinburgh just doing a performance and then getting their gear and selling it after the gig and she went oh well actually perhaps that's what I need to do and that's and then she's rebuilt her and I think in a way a lot of artists I've noticed have kind of the, the reforming of a band almost would then sort of break your kind of that past and then it well, it's the it's this getting a new understanding of how one can survive in the world that we're in now which is not the world that it was 30 40 years ago yes. so there has, has to perhaps be a certain amount of hands-on stuff and I'm okay with that you know I'm I mean hands-on stuff is you know uh you know, for the last 15 years, I've been doing all my artwork and I've been, you know, been involved in manufacturing and sort of all the mastering, all the different elements I've got to. So at the moment, I'm just probably just, you know, uh, putting all those things together. So when you just, I mean, because your production work and it was kind of, there was a couple of things you did in the 80s for other people like Felt and also the Gun Club and Felt, you know, were one of those prolific artists and Lawrence was kind of an amazing artist, a bit like the Momus as well, who just seemed to do an album a year for 20 years. I mean, did you kind of enjoy stepping into that role of producing because you know think of mr bowie doing you know iggy pop and lou reed suddenly as well as all these other solo yeah i think my uh, heart as a producer in the 80s compared to my heart as a producer now is like uh two very different things in the 80s i was a a young guy trying to sort of like i guess prove to all the grown-ups that i could exist and do something and i had an idea that was kind of worthy in a way of doing things. I don't think I really approached production with any sort of maturity at all, <laughs> really. Uh, I was basically, uh, pretty much everybody I produced back then were, were mates, you know, the right. people that I knew socially, you know, and, uh, you know, it just so happened I had a studio or I had 
you know, the skills and, you know, uh, I just wanted to help, you know, and they you know, were happy to let me do that. But it's also a learning of a lot as well. Mm. And I think as my, as I've, uh, you know, uh, how do you put this? Year after year, going through all the different productions I've done, I just think that I've really, you know, probably just matured and I understand how not to stamp everything with me now, which I didn't really understand so much then. I wasn't aware that I was stamping everything with me, mm-hmm. I, just because I never really had a, a perhaps a, you know, I never sort of knew what doing it like me was. I never defined what that was. I just did my stuff and it came out like that. Uh, and I'm more aware now that, you know, when I produce a band, it's their record. <laughs> you know? So I just need to like maybe just keep that in mind. I'm not sure that I ever kept that in mind when I was younger. But I guess I people really... from Phil Spector to Trevor Horn to, I don't know, Steve Albini and lots of those others who, you know, people would get those producers because they kind of wanted that vibe, didn't they? So that was their oh. that was their signature vibe. It's like, God, we need that person because he's going to give us this. Or, yes. Yeah. Well, that's why people use producers anyway, isn't it? Just to have a, someone who can sort of have a bit of perspective and be objective, you know, because every single person in a band is subjective. Every time, you know, I'll sit with the bass player who's saying, put the bass loud, and then the vocalist comes over and says, put the vocal louder. Everybody wants to be louder. And, you know, ultimately, you have to just have somebody making some decisions. So I always said that producing a record is a series of making decisions. Right. And you just commit and you commit and you commit until you've, until you've had any decisions left, and that's the record finished, you know. Yes. But it needs to be quite often making those decisions and not leaving all the options. In this digital world, we leave all the options to the end. You know, it's like, oh, we're fixing the mix, that sort of thing. No, it doesn't work. I mean, for me, it doesn't work. Because then you can spend, you know, uh, months in the studio, you know, and never quite making up your mind. So my sort of philosophy about that is like doing something, committing to it, moving forward, you know. Uh, and did you? And was that similar to this process of doing the, the new album? Were you able to sort of be quite, you know, finish one, move to the next track, you know, throughout that? Uh, I consciously have been working in what I call working in parallel uh, because I'm working on several pieces of music at the same time. I I've never really done that much uh, before. I've kind of been much more linear. Uh, I work on something till it's finished, mix it, and then move to the next one. And this time, because I've just been sort of put my new studio together and I got really, really excited about all the different uh, options and things that I could, uh, you know, different ways that I could perhaps change my workflow and introduce new elements and things like that. So I was kind of like a kid in a toy shop again, you know. Uh, it's like, oh, I can do this, oh, I can do this as well. But still with the with the thing in the front of my mind that is, I'm making an album here or I'm making something to finish here. I'm not just flapping about, you know. Yes. Uh, you know, I set out, uh, I know what I want when I start doing it. I don't, uh, I'm not, not to say that there's nothing experimental in there because there's quite often you know, the genesis that will start something going might be sort of just messing around with a new thing. It always was with the Cocktails, it still is. It's like quite an inspiring 
thing and you say, oh, I want to use that. I could be really good if I put it through that and that kind of thing. But very early on, I'm aware that I have to finish that and it has to sort of, uh, you know, exist in its own right at the end of it. Yes, well, absolutely. You know, I just, because of the ambient quality and the sonic soundscape of it, I just wondered how it was kind of made, thinking, yep, yeah, I'm, I can now not sign it off, but that's that's done. I just wondered how easy that was to get to a point that you're really satisfied and not thinking, no, let me just have another go at that. I think that's just, uh, what do I think that is? That's a big pause, wasn't it? I like I just tried to explain. It's just that I know when it's when when to stop. I mean, I'll do I do a mix and I review it and I might you know change it once or twice within a twenty four hour period. But then after that, it's finished. I don't go back, right? You know, uh, because I'm already on the next thing. You know, uh, and it's true that with computers and things like that, you can tweak forever. You know. There's nothing to stop, but you know the uh, the principle about what I'm doing is in my head. It's not it's nothing to do with the studio. It's about me creating a piece of music that is tied to a certain emotional event or something that's inspired me. And I've thought about how this is going to get together. I've sort of done all the bits. I've mixed it. It's finished. I want to do something else now because I don't have the headspace to keep that going in my head. Yes, I mean with with the album. I mean, is there I mean, was did you ever have a moment with any of the music you've made thinking, oh yes, that Edward Hopper f- painting, which you know, the night cafe or night hawks, or a particular writer that you've got in your head when you're making that music that you think, oh, this would actually go with that Rothko, or that would go with the Hopper, or that would go with the, you know, uh, yeah, not the- not 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 so much, but the uh, it should be said that the titles are intrinsically linked to the piece of music because the title is my. You know, I'm not a, a lyricist, I'm not a singer, I don't have that human voice. So my voice has to be the music, but also a small bit of voice I've got is, well, you know that title there? This is, if you actually, <laughs> quite a lot of people that know me, like intimately know what these, what I was doing in my life when I was creating this music, and hence the, they understand the titles. But that's not something I just want to, you know, uh, that's. That's just me. That's just my uh, indulgence, probably. But it's also part of the creative process, you know. Right. Castaway. It's in yeah, it, the clue. Yeah. The clues in the title. Clues in the title. It's like C eighty six. But we can. But we can bring. We didn't see what was coming. <laughs> Sherlock. I know. God. Okay. Right. Okay. That's kind of that's interesting. And then having done this and sort of thinking, wow, that's. And I do love the art, the artwork as well. I think the covers, it does remind me of those albums by e, on the ECM records as well. So I love that label. Pardon? I love that label. If I if I was ever going to have a label when you know earlier in the in some time in the last forty years when I thought about having a label or what the label could be like if I ever had one, that was the kind of thing that I was kind of hoping any label I got involved with would be of that type of thing that little alarm is to say my battery is like eight percent so, okay um, so yeah, yeah okay. so yeah that as a that type of thing is like coming from that background of 4ad and 4ad was very much a label before a label before the artist basically the ivo never made any uh he never hid the fact that he always felt the label was more important than the artists 
very, very strong identity. Uh, I like the identity of ECM. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, I kind of like this quite serious, and it's like kind of represents it in some way. You know, it's not kind of like indie. Yeah. Because I never felt like an indie person ever, but I know that my, you know, my entire career has been thanks to the indie world. You know what I mean? But I didn't necessarily identify with, you know, uh, indie as a sort of ethos at all. I mm -hmm. kind of, I, I always like things to sound expensive and proper and well done. Serious. Um, yeah, and but just done really well yes and i always sort of took indie as a bit of a byword for a bit shabby and maybe that's just really very kind of old school but i mean you know it did it did sort of have that you know homemade lo-fi sort of ethos yeah you know uh tdk and, tdk tapes and flexi discs yeah that kind of thing but you know i mean that was just my personal sort of view on it that's why when you when you said ecm there i said oh, yeah yeah but i didn't ever get close to that so <laughs> <laughs> no but when 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 you know you got your ecm record and it doesn't really matter you just knew it was going to come with a mm -hmm. there was a bit of um gravitas and seriousness this was going to be a this was going to be a work that you needed to sit down and focus on does that mean with this release and this kind of next period that you've got kind of interesting ideas i'm guessing playing live is going to be a bit tricky with so much going on yeah but it's always been tricky so that's you know if i actually cut that out of my things that i need to worry about then my life becomes a bit easier because if i'm not worrying about it then i'm not constraining my music to make it things that i could actually play live yes yeah you know, so i'm not worrying about that at the moment cross that bridge when we come to it and uh, yeah and does that and so does so just lastly robin does that mean that you've got projects you probably have haven't you um that you're working on or collaborations that are possibly in the pipeline for the for the next year or two yes i have uh on the third of december i produced a single which is coming out it's called Please Fall In Love With Me. It's a cover of a John Martin song by Heligoland Stroke She-Owl. It's a, it's a collaborative thing between those two bands. I also have an EP called Riviera coming out on December 10th. I have another EP, which I'm not going to tell you the title yet, but I'm putting it out on my birthday. It's going to be my 60th birthday, and I'm expecting birthday presents. Okay? Yeah, absolutely. It's an EP. It's an EP. I'm going to put it out on the 4th of January. And, uh, yeah, my, uh, my, if I was, because I'm not 14 years old, I had to think about what excuses I could use to post on the internet. And I think my buzz is as good as an excuse as anything. So I'll put that out then. Uh, I have then got, yeah, I've got some other things on. I've got, got interesting stuff comment on, social media somebody asked if my new record was ambient just because we were talking about ecm just now and i could only answer no you've got to pay attention to it you know yes <laughs> and i think that that's how i feel about my music it may be instrumental but it sort of demands i don't know i, I demand a bit of it's not background music no no uh, but, it does, but having, having said that, I'm, I'm planning on, and I realise that quite a lot of people seem to like the sort of down-tempo stuff that I do, but I've been sort of mixing that up with 
you know, there's probably only like really one down tempo thing on the album, Pearl Diving. But I think I might do a whole album like that uh, in the new year, uh, just because why not? People like it. And I, I, I like doing it. But I often feel it's a bit of a cop out because quite easy doing records like that compared to you know the, the the other records I make which demand an awful lot of care and attention uh just in terms of the musical content and the number of harmonies and the mixing and the number of things going on and the kind of nice floaty stuff can be done fairly economically in terms of uh not effort per se but uh you know, if it's spacier, it's less involved, there's less layers, there's less, you know, it's it's a nice thing for me to actually, you know, after doing uh, Treasure, which was for its time quite complicated, felt the need to do Victoria Land because I just wanted to like, you know, do a whole, a whole piece that was just stripped back to a couple of things, you know, mm. so it's like, I'm that kind of place. I'm pretty sure the next thing that I do after the one that comes out in January will be a a down tempo where I feel that coming. Do you think you're channeling the spirit of kind of a universal cos- uh, consciousness with, you know, the state of things and the need to, to contemplate? Do you think part of your music might be picking up on that? I've got absolutely no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> no, but, you know, the, 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 you know, everything, you know, there's a lot of kind of like the new, you know, we try to avoid the news a bit, but, you know, you can't help but occasionally go, wow, it's all, you know, the pandemic, there's a new variant, there's, you know, global warming, there's kind of, you know, people dying in the north, you know, in the sea, you know, trying to get to the UK, you know, the, it's it's kind of quite grim and your music kind of has a... Yeah, listen, like I said before, I grew up in the 60s and there's been a lot of quite grim and quite honestly, it's, it's you know, it's grim, but it's no grimmer than it's been at other times, you know. It's, you know, when you go through life and you think that you are entitled to happiness and peace then we got some problems you know and I do believe that you know perhaps uh people that are this that wee bit older that you know we know that happiness and peace is not not a given it's not an entitlement Mm -hmm. it's something that we're lucky enough to get some of that in our life that's great uh it's only if you have expectations that you get disappointed after all yes did you feel though, with with kind of moving on, did you feel that taking taking kind of responsibility for things rather than feeling like a victim kind of helped shift? Well, oh, absolutely, yeah. But I mean, this is, you know, uh, I think that just the times have changed. You know, people. It's terrible to talk uh, in generalities, but you know, people grow up a little bit older now. They're not forced into growing up quite as quickly. I mean, I know people that are, you know, in their 30s and 40s, they still just buy games and buy toys and, you know, you know, don't, you know, they've never quite got around to, you know, uh, getting a proper job or buying a house or any of those things. And then they're wondering how their life isn't moving forward. You know, yeah. I, I, I know that I sound like an aged person sort of like <laughs> that, but it's just an, it's an observation, you know. Yeah, you know, so I think in different in different periods of uh, humanity, we've been forced into an awful lot of growing up an awful lot quicker, you know. And me as a parent of, uh, you know, uh, oh, that's my battery. My phone is powering off in thirty seconds. Thirty seconds. I know. I'm so very sorry about that. 
I can. Uh, I'm, That's. I can't even, I can't even charge it here. I'm going to email you back because it would be nice to say goodbye properly. Yes, okay. And I don't want to just leave you like this, okay? But I will get back to you in five, in five minutes, yeah? What, an email? Okay. Spend, I'll just, oh, yeah, on, on an email, yeah, or whatever. Okay. Or I'll call you. Okay. Oh, you've gone. Indeed, we've all gone one day. Anyway, look, massive thank you to Robin. I like I like leaving those last bits in because I don't know, it keeps it real and it makes me smile. And frankly, Mr. Shangley, that's all that matters. But a massive thank you again to Robin Guthrie for giving me the time for that interview. Um, much much appreciated. And as I mentioned, and probably during the interview as well, he has got several EPs and an album out: Mockingbird Love and also. Uh, Riviera, which are EPs, and also the album Pearl Dive In. Do check it out. It's beautiful. This has been the C86 Show, David Eastor. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy because, frankly, Mr. Shankly, um, life's too short and then you die. And um, I don't need any negative vibes. And also, all these have been um, interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. So, again, just do C86 Show and you'll find them. They're beautiful. Take care. Have a great week. Stay safe.